Hello, I'm Peter Dunn from the University of Warwick, and today I'm joined by the acclaimed author Alan Garner, OBE. Alan is an award-winning author whose earliest books, Weird Stone, Wind of Gomroth and Elidor, were marketed for children. He said himself that he's never intended to write specifically for the children's market, and those earliest books are treasured by a range of age groups, and he has also written a number of acclaimed works clearly aimed at an adult audience. His fourth book, The Owl Service, written in 1968, won both the Guardian Award and the Carnegie Medal, and it was also adapted by himself into a haunting television series in 1969, which is still available on DVD today. His subsequent novels include Red Shift, Strandloper, Thursbitch, and he's also written a collection of short stories called The Stone Book Quartet, which received the Phoenix Award from the Children's Literature Association in the US in 1996. And The Voice of Thunder is a collection of essays and lectures published in 1997. Alan Garner's roots are in Cheshire, in particularly the area around Alderley Edge, where he was born and lives now. And Alderley Edge has been of crucial importance to his writing. It's formed the inspiration and heart of, its, of many of his books, and his books draw in particular from the history, the mythology and the archaeology of the area, and from his own local explorations and study of that area. He is particularly interested in the language of the region, which he describes as Northwest Mercian Middle English, and he has often reproduced its cadences into his works. In 2001, Alan was awarded the OBE for services to children's literature, and he will now today receive his first ever honorary degree from a university, when the University of Warwick awards him an honorary doctorate of letters. So welcome to the University of Warwick, Mr. Garner, and congratulations on uh, being awarded the honorary degree by the university. I understand it's the first, and I've had many other honours, it's the first honorary degree from a university. And uh, what does that mean to you? It means uh, a great deal. I've got quite a lot of experience with universities, and um, some are happier than others. And uh, Warwick appeals to me particularly in that I have no affiliations with it. Therefore, there's no possibility that 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 uh, degree was given through nepotism or any political move. And what attracts me to Warwick in the first place was the fact that a young man I know took his first degree at one of our most senior universities and was not satisfied with the level of teaching he was getting and switched to Warwick. And I thought that was, in the first place, brave, and in the second place, it made me twitch my nose about this strange building in the Midlands. <laughs> and uh, there's a, a, another aspect to Warwick, which I've later come to uh, be very enthusiastic about, and, and that's the uh, encouragement of intelligent children. Iggy. It's very close to my heart because I was educated at Manchester Grammar School which was founded in 1515 to enable boys to be prepared for university regardless of their parents ability to pay and that's still so that's why I got educated and why our son got educated so Iggy attracted me very much. Very pleased that you're interested in Iggy our, our international gateway for gifted youth and, and very pleased that uh, You've agreed to uh, allow us to put up four books for a competition on the Iggy website, so they, uh, they'll be looking forward to that. And it's been a, a marvellous couple of years for you recently. 
in that you've been celebrating the 50th anniversary of, of your first book. There's been a whole year of events connected to it, Weirdstone. Now, perhaps you could answer a question for the more phonetically challenged of your fans, including myself, as to how do you pronounce the rest of the title? <laughs> Brusingamen. Brisingman. Brisingman. That's that's great. I now mm. know. I, yeah. I I dare not try <laughs> pronouncing it before speaking to you. Now I'm I'm a parent of an eight-year-old uh, child myself, an eight-year-old son, and uh, I've, I've been reading your your earlier, more children's books recently. And uh, what do you think about the the idea that what twenty-first uh, century children will probably find most challenging about them? Isn't the idea that they've got to believe in wizards and, and dwarfs and elves, but the idea that they believe that they'd be allowed to wander around old copper mines in the middle of a, the middle of Alder the Edge, or wander around the slums and the derelict buildings of Manchester in the middle of the night? Because I, I couldn't conceive of that now, sadly. <laughs> it is very sad because when I go to Alder the Edge, it has been sanitised. Uh, when I grew up there, we would play right through every season of the year, day and night. It was wartime, so the, it was complete blackout. Uh, so even getting up to the edge was done in, in the darkness. And I just throw my eyes up about health and safety generally and become extremely angry about the uh, crippling effect it has. I mean, obviously, there is behind it all a recognition of a need. But in my childhood, which may have just been a working class attitude, was if there was anything up, we'd hear soon enough. <laughs> As opposed to the middle class attitude of, oh dear, what can the matter be? Uh, taking again your earliest books, taking uh, The Weird Stone and Wind of Gomrath and, uh, and Elidor, uh, it'd be quite easy from their book descriptions on Amazon or whatever to, to see these as formula fantasy. Normally in fantasy you have a bad guy, a really big bad guy who's introduced at the start and it all leads to a stupendous battle with him or her and, and good triumphs. Yet uh, your main big bad guy, so to speak, in uh, Elidor and uh, Gomrath, you introduce some Nastrond, but he never actually appears <laughs> at all in the book. It's all mm -hmm. sort of the middlemen sort of listening to battle. And the end of Elidor, um, uh, the spoilers ahead, folks, if you don't want to listen. The end of Elidor is bleak in the extreme. A very dead unicorn. They're not terribly sure if they've saved the land, and the kids are left lying in the slums of Manchester. So this is anything but normal formula fantasy. Well, it is probably the nearest I've come to being bleak, and uh, I don't like being bleak. But I do admit that the final sentence of Elidor is fairly grim, mm. uh, both in, in what it says and uh, phonetically. It just it says the children were alone with the broken windows of a slum. If you turn the page over, that's the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> but if I'd written more, the only thing that could have happened would have been that Roland would have gone mad. I, I have no agenda when I'm writing, except subjectively to take down the story that's telling itself to me. It's a very weird experience. And I don't want to become mystical about it because I think there's a, a perfectly rational explanation of how the unconscious mind works. Mm. I got somewhere into Elidor and I stuck. And in the end, I knew what was wrong. The king of Elidor, if that's what he mm. is, Malibron, 
uh, as I started to write him, was uh, he was kind. He was saying, there, there, little boy, don't be frightened. Everything's all right. I, I just want you to save my world, and then I'll take you home again. And then I realized that that would not be the case, because he was working on a prophecy. As far as he knew, he was the only one left. Mm. And if you become obsessed with things like that, you become psychotic. And Malibron is psychotic. And he does not give a damn about those children, because they are prophesied, and they're going to come, and he's going to use them. And it all fell into place in the winter of 1962-63, which was a very bad winter. And I was going through Coventry, and the cathedral was freshly built. So I thought I would go and have a look at it. And the weather was so bad that I had the cathedral to myself. And as I approached it, I looked up, and there was Epstein's St. Michael. And I thought, that's Malibron. That is not a kind face. <laughs> that is totally bent on destruction. I've got him. <laughs> or all, he's got me. So Malibron is, in, in fact, um, based on Epstein St. Michael's on Coventry Cathedral. That's fascinating. I never knew that. Yeah. Well, nobody's ever heard it before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to connect your earlier works with all your later ones, the one thread which goes through them all, of course, is Alter the Edge. It's remarkable how it just it exudes out of your books, the writing. You really feel the place, and you feel the depth of the knowledge and research that has gone into not just the geography, but the history and the mythology of Alder the Edge, right across all the books, from Raft through to Thursbitch, um, through the Stone Quartet, all of them, it just seemed to exude Alder the Edge. Is that sort of the principal driver for many of your works? Yes, um, because I was stuck, because I happened to be educated. I was the first one to be academically educated in my family, a family of craftsmen. And something interesting happened there, which is still going on today, otherwise it would just be historical anecdote. But uh, Alan was going to get an education. And in the minds of my family, I realized that getting an education was getting a three-dimensional solid object. Like Alan <laughs> was going to get a car or a brick or a house, and then this precocious lad, the precocious lad went off and would come back home and start to gabble. And gradually I realized that the family couldn't take it. And uh, it's a very ancient family. Uh, I can trace them back without a break to 1592 in one square mile. That's where uh, I just absorbed that through osmosis mm -hmm. as a child. And they weren't very interested in the excitements of irregular verbs. <laughs> so uh, that, that became, uh, you're trying to make us look a fool. There's one exception, my granddad, who was a smith. He was a, a great man, and he didn't articulate it much, but he, he had great sympathy for me and for what was happening, because he was a perfectionist. I remember being desperate, and I was sitting in his smithy one day, because I, I, I'd probably had a rough time at home. And I was trying to show that being educated did have a value. Uh, and I remember saying to him, Grandad, Suomi on stamps means Finland. And 
he said laconically, just gazing into his forge fire, Ah, oh, and what about the coefficient of expansion of brass? <laughs> Did you know that one? <laughs> but what he was saying was, I accept you. I accept, I accept that. You accept me. We'll get on very well. And never mind the others. But that's that's what happened. I found that there was this disaffectation, which was not of my conscious making, although I probably was a fairly objectionable, precocious youth. But the one thing that I did have uh, in common with my family was uh, this uh, osmotic awareness of the landscape. But I could take it further. I'd got all that history, tradition, gossip, going back I don't know how long, but I also knew that the edge uh, was a, a piece of Triassic sandstone, 243 million years old. So it was both an emotional and an intellectual wonder, and uh, everything just happened naturally from, from there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I respond very intently to landscape, because to begin with, Technically, uh, I, I simply could not handle the subtleties of character, dialogue, all the things that uh, you just learn more and more to understand are impossible <laughs> as, you, as you go on. But I did know the land, and uh, the last year has uh, made me go back and look at the books, because I never look at the things once I've finished mm. with them. I've no interest in, in them because I've had enough of them. <laughs> uh, and the next one's starting. As a result of going back uh, and looking at what I did 50 years ago, I, I can say quite clearly and objectively, the books are, especially the first two are the books of a young man, mm. and they're full of energy. And that, I hope, compensates for their, their lack of other qualities that I, I hope I've developed since. Well, the fact they're still in print after 50 years suggests a lot of people think that they're, they have lots of qualities <laughs> and still selling today. And to drill down into one particular bit of the landscape, I was in Thursbitch, which I'm probably pronouncing terribly badly, so, so apologise. Uh, Thursbitch. Thursbitch, have I got it right? Thursbitch. Oh, it, it's... Old English, mm. and it means the Valley of the Demon. Mm. It is a, it, it's an amazing book and an amazing place from the, from the sounds of things. And I was also stunned to notice that title of one of your later books, but it's mentioned very early on, very early on, as just in passing in Moon of Gomrath, I think. Was it at that point that you thought that name, that word, was that the point where you thought I ought to be writing a book about that at some stage, or? I'd forgotten I'd done that <laughs> until various clever clogs and over the past year said that it was in the moon of Gomra. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I've, I'd totally forgotten. But it, 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 uh, it is an, an amazing book in that it, it again exudes research. It's, a, uh, it's about not just a valley, but year exploration, explorations in it. And a lot of the story revolves around a stone you basically tripped over. Is that right? No, I didn't trip. I, I slid, <laughs> slid over it. Over. I, in, in my youth, I was an athlete, and I used to go out and lope. And I was up in the hills. I didn't really know where I was. And there was a low stone wall in front of me. 
and down the other side it was an ancient pack horse road so it's a hollow lane yeah. and there was a grass slope going down to the road so i just slid down it and i felt my bottom cross over something hard and smooth and i thought that's odd turned round and looked and it was just the grass in the bank so i parted the grass and found myself looking at a, a monumental stone and it says here john turner was cast away in a snowstorm in the night in or about 1735 now i come from a family of stonemasons and i thought what's going on here that's well done and it was set into the bank, or rather the bank had slipped down onto it over, over the time. So I started clearing it away with my hand. And the side was well finished. I thought, eh, that cost money. I got to the back, I thought, uh, and then we get to the rough stuff. And round the back, the back was well made. I was dressed just in running shorts and a singlet, and I was at a height of nearly 2,000 feet above sea level. <laughs> and although it was July, it was late afternoon. And uh, I thought, I wonder why the back is smooth. So I started to scrape this harsh millstone grit sand away. My fingers met a letter. And that really did freak me out <laughs> because it wasn't weathered. And so I continued and continued and continued. And in the end, although I couldn't see it, I could read with my fingers that the back of it said, the print of a woman's foot was in the snow where he lay dead. Mm -hmm. And then I realised my arm was jammed. <laughs> ah, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't get it out. So I was whimpering and, and, and as the late afternoon drove on. <laughs> eventually I got free. And I, I think if, the, if it could have been measured, the, uh, the 10 miles from there to my home, that would still be in the Guinness Book of Records. <laughs> You've obviously, obviously worked hard in many ways to produce produce the books you have, but you also make your, your readers at the times work work very hard in ways that are both challenging and, and, and fun. The use of local dialect is, is one area where readers have to work hard to actually get a sense of, of what's happening in the book. But the thing I found most challenging was Redshift, where it was the first of your books I actually actually read. And uh, brilliant, I'm really a I, I, I fan of the Civil War period, loved it. Then I got to the last two pages, and they're in code. Yeah. And I'm afraid I cheated because it was a very hard code. So I went on the internet to find where someone else had craftily produced the solution to it and read it. So I understood after reading it again, spoilers ahead, folks. It suggests there's some more hope than you expect <laughs> once you solve that code. But at the time, did, did, you, did you think this was going to be a massive challenge to the readers? Not just an ordinary transposition code, but a really hard code to solve. Well... I've been fascinated by codes, and in, in my national service, I was quite deeply involved with them. And so that was me. And I, I rued the day because I was left with two blank pages, <laughs> and uh, the code formed quite a part of the plot of the modern period in Redshift. So I thought I'd leave a message. I have regretted it because... Uh, it's written by Tom, who was an extremely over-intelligent and disturbed young man, mm. and he is at a point of emotional breakdown, 
and he'd used the code as uh, a means of communicating with Jan, his girlfriend, because he found his mother was reading her letters. So he uses the uh, the code. And then, if you break the code on the end papers, which I do, for me, they were just examples, you see that not only did he use the code, but he used it back to front. Therefore, if you thought you were doing it properly, you wouldn't get anywhere. And it's a full apology to Jan for his bad behaviour towards her. And he realises that he's never said sorry for anything in his life. And he apologises fully and he hints, and it's only a hint, hmm. that he can't stand it and he's going to jump off the church tower. He puts it into her handbag surreptitiously on their last meeting. And he says, if you read this, you must care. And if you don't, then it's my fault and there's no point. So it, it's never actually resolved. We don't know whether yeah. Jan read the letter. letter. And I won't ask you what you think. I'll let the readers decide yeah. <laughs> whether she yeah. read it or not. But the, the curse is children write to me in the code. <laughs> Oh, no. So you have to decipher do you reply in code? <laughs> per, per year. No, I, I, I only got so many hours. I can imagine. <laughs> you obviously put your readers in the tight places at times like that, but you also put your characters in tight places. There's almost, and, and it's very evocative in two of the books in particular, in Stone Quartet, and I think it's in Weird Stone. The characters seem to be found themselves in very tightly confined stone places where frightened me. Uh, is this something that, in particular, it, um, where did that come from, this idea of being confined in tight spaces? Was it just a natural consequence of a plot or something? That it came from heard? my exploring the copper mines of Alderley Edge at the age of 19. It's a place that quite frequently killed people. Being a local lad, uh, never dreamt of going down uh, the copper mines. Too many members of my family over the years had been killed there. And so I was 19 before I went down, and I'd, I'd had some training in caving. <laughs> that was, not, again, not intentional. I was just trying to get across my feelings. But um, there's something very strange that happens with the Weird Stone and Brisingerman. Um, quite often, if I'm talking to an audience, and at the end there's a question, there's usually somebody who stands up and says they couldn't finish reading The Weird Stone of Brisingerman. It, it really is very interesting psychologically because it is, without exception, always a woman who says it. And it's got to the stage where I have to say, stop, please stop. I know what you're going to say. And if I answer it, you may find it personally embarrassing. <laughs> and it's always the same thing. It's the, it's the part underground where Colin gets stuck. Yes. And the rock is biting into his shins. And I think that may be a bit close to home for people who are have experienced giving birth or are thinking of giving birth. I think it chills them. It chilled me and I was a bloke at the time. That, that was a bit you, you, you remember <laughs> most and you just feel for the guy. Even if it's a story, yeah. story. But terrible. everything there I've done. Ah, it's happened to and you. I, yeah. <laughs> but uh, for anybody listening who is a, uh, yeah. going to be a caver, <laughs> remember, this was advice given to me yeah. by an experienced caver, 
the rock has no opinion. And the, the, if you do get stuck, the natural tendency is to become rigid. Yeah. And that's when you stay stuck. Yeah. You have to be able to relax because you can pull a piece of string through a windy space, but you can't take a stiff poker no. or a rod of iron through it. <laughs> no, we're running out of time, but on the subject of time, that again, like Alderley Edge, runs through many of your books and the idea of, of time periods almost in a messy way, interfering with each other, coalescing on top of each other, often usually in, in a way where you could read it whichever way you like. But the one book where there seems to be a very clear thematic thing going on, where very different from all the others on time, is, again, I'm probably pronouncing it badly, is, is Strandloper, where it seems that time is literally a loop as it's strand. He, seem, he seems to start and end at the same point where uh, he ends up in Australia, he ends up work, being with the Aborigines, being absorbed in Aborigine culture. And before he ever goes there, is starting to produce Aborigine forms and words and dots and lines before he ever leaves for Australia. Is, is, have I got that right? Was that what you're trying to get across, that time is a loop in that book? or? Well, time is linear for really very few people in the world. They mm. just happen to be the the bosses. I had a, a fortunate childhood. It wasn't fortunate at the time. I, My primary school years, um, more than half of it was spent paralysed in bed on various occasions. And I just learnt to play with time. I was an only child, and I didn't realise that other people didn't have the experiences. In in defence, uh, I, I would play with time, and I, I could subjectively extend time if I was enjoying myself, if you can enjoy yourself lying paralysed in bed, or if something was really bad, I could compress it. I've always been interested in concepts of time. It is too deep a philosophical matter to go into, but the Australian Aborigines, they have concepts of nine separate temporal dimensions oh. which they move within quite happily and i i would not even begin to try to explain that <laughs> but i had to learn what it meant indeed and you spent all of your books involved a great deal of research which is quite clear which informs the books which are all relatively short but exude study and time and effort and i'm fascinated many of your books have said earlier about your beloved Alderley Edge. But the one I've got to ask about, which is my first uh, introduction to you, was um, the Owl Service, which I first saw as a haunting TV program, um, originally broadcast in 1969, and still on sale today. Still people are buying it on, on DVD. And again, that exudes the same research, the same amount of effort. Yet it's not about Alderley Edge, it's about Wales. What made you leap from Alderley Edge to Wales? Well, my mother-in-law, inherited a, a dinner service from her sister-in-law who said that she couldn't eat off it. She kept it in a barn because the owls gave her indigestion. When I saw it, I just saw the pattern, an abstract pattern of flowers round the, the plate. And my wife, who was very dexterous, had seen that if she traced the pattern out, and, and cut them up and moved them around and, and bent them and folded together, a bit like origami. They did, in fact, make uh, owls mm. that were also floral. And they're three-dimensional, and you can perch them on, on the back of a chair, and they, they just sit there nodding. And uh, when I saw this, I, I said, have you read the Mabinogion? 
and that is one of the best conversation stoppers I've ever had. <laughs> I can imagine it would be. <laughs> and the Mabiogion obviously being the, the series of Welsh legends. Yes, the series of Welsh, medieval Welsh legends, and this particular one where he's essentially a sun god, Cleo, has a wife made for him out of flowers who betrays him and as a result finds out how to kill him. He is turned into an eagle. His uh, father, who is also his uncle, it's all very incestuous, <laughs> I could tell. Um, goes and finds him, brings him back to life and his proper shape and he goes and kills his wife's lover. And the uh, uncle, Gwydion, says to the wife made of flowers that he would put a curse on her worse than death, uh, that he would turn her into an owl and no birds would have anything to do with her. The word means flower face in, in, in ah. Welsh. So it's it's all it's all very complex and psychological, uh, and I was grabbed by that. The the basic thing that got me going on it was that the three characters in the Mabinogion, there's Cleo, there's Badewith who's made out of flowers for him, and then there's the lover Grono who's a human being. They were trapped. None of them was a bad character and yet they destroyed each other. And I thought, yes, I can relate to that. And this shows up again in Redshift, that in the modern world, in the modern Western world, we can frequently kill people over the breakfast table. We don't actually go and stick a knife in them. We, we do worse than that. We, we destroy, the, destroy the relationship. That's what got me going. And by a freak coincidence, a friend of my wife's family had inherited a house in Wales years and years and years ago. And we were absolutely skint. She said, she asked us whether we'd go and look after the house because it, it, was, uh, it was never lived in. It was only a holiday house. If we wanted to use it, we could. And as soon as I saw it, I thought, that's the house. And this is the site of the legend. And when I did the research, it was. <laughs> and that's, that's uh, I tell you, writing is a dangerous occupation. Because <laughs> quite often I find that what I'm inventing, in quotes, has already um, been waiting for me. We're very glad that it's so, because it's produced some, some wonderful books that, uh, that I will certainly treasure. And, uh, and one final question. Uh, as you say, you're, you're now about to go to your degree ceremony and, and uh, receive your honorary degree from the University of Warwick. Do you have any advice for your other fellow student graduands today who are also about to graduate? I think it's dangerous to give advice, but what I found useful as a young man, and I still find useful today, is something my grandfather said again, this wise man who spoke little. He said, always take as long as the job tells you because it'll be here when you're not and you don't want folks saying what fool made that codge and another thing which was worse it was the curse he put on me i was seven. Oh no he said if the other fellow can do it let him <laughs> <laughs> which he meant 
And it's how he lived. He was a, a much respected craftsman. What he was saying in modern terms was, find out what your own individual quality is and develop that and don't take any notice of any advice. <laughs> but, but thank you very much indeed for those wise words and, and all um, taking the time to, to speak to us today. And I'm sure many listeners will, will also value as much as I have done. And uh, once again, congratulations on uh, receiving your honorary degree from the University of Warwick today. And we hope you have a great day. Thank you. I'm having one already. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.